Actually, uh, one one of the things that uh, we uh, you know we get trained in a lot of medical kinds of things, and super glue is one of the like most important elements on yep. that space station because the only thing that is scarier than a doctor coming at you with a needle is a pilot coming at you with a needle. <laughs> right. So, Katie, did you play with Legos when you were a kid? Ooh. No, but I played with them a lot as a mom. Aha, uh-huh. <laughs> yes. I feel the same as a dad. So actually, I asked for a very specific purpose. And i just seen that Lego has launched an incredible 2,354-piece NASA Space Shuttle Discovery set with, wait for this, with a replica of the Hubble Space Telescope. Awesome. I need one now. Uh, see, that that's <laughs> what I was thinking. I mean, in the past, you always went for the Death Star with Lego, but now it seems like NASA and Lego have just upped the game here. <laughs> well, I was actually a mean mom, and I, I basically would buy buckets of Lego on eBay yep. and just say, let's build stuff. And was always amazed at what my kid came up with. And then the day came. The day came when he wanted to build those things. And I had actually bought things like the Mars Rover and things like that when he was tiny thinking, maybe, maybe. But then when it actually comes down to it and you have to like follow those directions. It is tedious. Well, it's hard. It is definitely hard. Actually, (laughs) on on our mission, um, Lego actually um, did an experiment, quote unquote, and they sent Legos up to the space station. And they, it, it was actually a Lego space station to build. Wow. So this is the thing. So you actually had Lego pieces floating around up there. Well, that was actually the question was, if you're going to assemble stuff, how put together does it need to be? Like those little Legos could do a lot of damage on a space station, you know, caught in between things. And so criminally, they came partly assembled and glued together. Goodness me. Okay, now that is just sad beyond belief. I'm Katie Coleman. I'm Andrew Maynard. Today on Mission Interplanetary, we're asking, should the first human mission to Mars be an all-woman crew? So is this an attempt to exclude me from going to space, Katie? Well, yes. I have to say, (laughs) we tried to think of all the criteria, and I'm pretty sure there will be British women on that crew, but... (laughs) <laughs> right. Okay, good. I'm so I'm glad you weren't just going by the accent and not gender. <laughs> it's true. So it's going to be fascinating to see where this conversation goes this week. So let's get to our weekly obsessions. I'm almost afraid to ask, but what are you obsessed about this week? Well, this is going to get a little dark, but what I've been obsessing about this week is biopreservation. Continue. So this actually comes from a a National Science Foundation project, or not a project, it's a huge program that I'm a part of in a small way, where we're looking at how you can extend the life of biological organs and and tissues, which is a huge deal. You imagine you can take something like a a living human heart, and instead of it just having a few hours shelf life, it's now got a few weeks or a few months. Absolutely. So really important science. But what really got me thinking this week was actually about space. Um, And thinking, say you look at that that first trip to Mars. First of all, do you pack a whole bunch of organs? Spare parts? Literally spare parts parts going to Mars. Um, And this is really important because if something fails on a person, it's really good to have some spare parts there and we need the technology to preserve them. But this is where it got really dark in my head. Okay. Um, What happens if somebody dies on that trip? 
do you need a way of recycling them? Well, okay, a little more clarity there on the recycling. So you've got this dead body. You've got a bunch of organs and a bunch of tissues. You've got all that skin. You've got the eyes. You've got the cornea. You've got the heart. You've got the liver. You've got the lungs. Surely it's a it's a criminal waste if you just eject that into space. Well, I, I am actually a big fan of of being an organ donor, right? And 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 and, I, and we do it. You know, we think about it down here because it's a gift. You know, not everyone feels differently about it in, in their very own personal way. But when you're in a place where there just isn't enough of everything, I, I think certainly people should still get to volunteer or not. Maybe it's a really special gift. Yes. Yeah. When people are motivated to do something for space, often it, it accelerates the research. Right. And that's where it gets really interesting. But as I said, it's also a bit of a dark obsession. So bring some lightness to this conversation. What's your obsession been this last week? Well, I've been obsessed with rock stars. Oh, yes. I, rock stars in terms of physical rocks or rock stars in terms of amazing people or both? Well, it is actually both because it was a pretty cool week. The International Astronomical Union Minor Planet Center mm -hmm. that oversees the designation of small bodies in the solar system released a list of 27 asteroids that are named after African-American, Hispanic, and Native American astronauts and explorers. Isn't that wow. cool? So it is incredibly cool. So you were right, rock stars in both senses at the turn. It's true. I mean, there's a, there's a guy, his name is Mark Bowie. I hope I'm saying his name uh, correctly. But uh, they were discovered in the, in the belt between Mars and Jupiter. He's an astronomer in Colorado. And he said, you know, it's an honor and privilege to name these asteroids in recognition of fellow space explorers while also adding to the message of the power and value of diversity for all human endeavors. I love that. And that, that begins to tie in so perfectly with this week's theme, um, true rock stars in space. I agree. So why don't we get on to our guests? Today on Interplanetary, we're asking, should the first crewed mission to Mars be all women? Our guests are Tanya Harrison and Mary Robinette Kowal. Mary Robinette is the author of Ghost Takers, the Glamorous Histories series, and the Lady Astronauts series. Um, and I believe Mary Robinette's Calculating Stars, the first of the Lady Astronauts series, is one of only 18 books to get the Nebula, the Hugo, and the Locus Award. So pretty impressive stuff. She's also the president of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, part of the award-winning podcast Writing Excuses, and in addition to everything else, a four-time Hugo Award winner. So welcome to the show, Mary Robinette. Thank you so much. Then we have Tanya Harrison. Tanya is a professional Martian. Over the past 13 years, she's worked as a planetary geologist and in mission operations on multiple NASA Mars missions. She's currently the Director of Science Strategy for the Federal Arm of Planet Labs, and you can find her on Twitter as at Tanya of Mars. Tanya, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. So I am going to start off uh, our discussion with a little bit of a whimsical start. Let's pretend that I'm the NASA administrator and I'm naming the first crew for Mars. And, you know, of course, it, this is the most important mission that we have 
ever had, you know, in, in human time. And so it's important that we pick exactly the right people that are best for the job. And for me in charge of picking that I feel I've done my best. So I came up with a list of, uh, I think, uh, great choices. Now, of course, we're going to start with a test pilot. That would be Jasmine Mogbili. And then we have Jessica Watkins, who's a geologist of great renown. Now, we need a few aerospace engineers. Those will be Jeanette Epps and Jenny Seide Gibbons from Canada. And finishing off with a geobiologist, because we still don't know what we're going to find there. And that is Zena Cardman. So... Tanya, Mary Robinette, you've heard the crew. What's right about this crew and what's wrong about this crew and how does it feel? Well, I don't hear anything wrong with the crew. It sounds amazing. I'm familiar with all of their biographies. They're incredibly skilled, talented candidates. I think that that would be a phenomenal crew. Yeah, everyone you've listed is perfect for the jobs that we need for a crewed mission to Mars. I was worried that people would catch on that, you know, basically there was something that they all had in common. You know, I'm sitting here being really quiet, Katie, because, yes. you know, I, I have no place in this conversation, obviously. You always have a place in this conversation. But just not on the first crew to Mars, obviously. Yes. So, of course, I, the, the, the thing here, of course, is that this is an all-woman crew. Um, and, of course, Katie, you would choose an all-woman crew because you're a woman astronaut and you know what a fabulous crew this would be. But it raises the question, um, is this a good idea? Should we be sending all-women crews out to Mars? Yeah, so, so to this point, I think one of the things for me about hearing it is um, that it is it is really empowering, even even as a make believe, to imagine an all woman crew, um, and we have seen so many all male crews. Like why why should an all woman crew be worthy of comment? Like that's that is the question for me. It's that's it's not whether or not these these women would be qualified because of course they would be, but why is it worthy of comment? if that's the way the, the crew breakdown happened to land. Isn't isn't that such an interesting point? Because it hadn't even struck me with such force before you said that. Um, because, of course, we do talk about, is this a good idea? Is it a bad idea? What are the pros and cons? But we never have that conversation about all the other all-male crews that have gone out. Um, why are we even having this conversation? Because it's 2021 and we still launch all-male crews. We've never had an all-woman crew. Ever. We've never even had a crew where the women outnumber the men. I think it's hugely important because it would demonstrate that women are just as capable, if not more capable, than men. And it shouldn't be something that's questioned because we've had so many all-male crews. It shouldn't matter what the breakdown is. No one should have a second thought as to, oh, this is going to be all women on this mission because we would never question it maybe 10, 15 years ago even if the crew was all men. I mean, it's, I'm actually torn, torn, torn between, I mean, certainly if you picked the people that were really essentially the people and in, in often there's a narrower choice than you would think of who's got the skills, it's the time in their career, they're ready, you know, all those kinds of things. But there is also the value of having people really talk about the all-female crew, having it be something that's really noticeable. And, and and because I and Mary Robinette, I think about this in your books. I mean, one of the reasons I value your books is because they tell these stories of a future that's fascinating. And even when I am rereading them, I cannot put them down. By the way, um, <laughs> but because I really want to hear the stories of these, and I want to see myself in those stories, and I want to see so many others, and I do. 
And so there's value in the spectacle itself of the fact that it would be all women. I, I think you're you're right. Like I don't think that the the spectacle is worth any you know any sacrifices. And I and the thing for me is that it it wouldn't be you you wouldn't need to have a sacrifice because the women are so qualified. Uh, but every time I hear them talking about the Artemis mission to Mars to, to to the Moon, excuse me, um, and they talk about the next man and and the first woman, and I always think, but why? I, you know, I understand why it is important to 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 make a, a you know draw a line in the stand sand make a stake say we're going to write this historical imbalance and and commit to sending a woman to the moon but why is the guy guaranteed a seat right and it still seems to be a very very top heady gender biased um, conversation um i'm not even sure how to approach this because i, I it's uncomfortable territory for me but uh, you see so much written about um, all female uh, teams going into space um, and justifying it because of either physiology or psychology. I mean, people still write about an all female team being less resource intensive, being lighter, being able to multitask. Um, and it, it fits uncomfortably with me because it does seem to play into stereotypes. Uh, but is there something to this? I mean, some of it is a little bit stereotypical, you know, not all women fit into a specific mold, but it is, there are genetic factors to this. The fact that women will use less food, for example, or um, there are studies that show that women might be less prone to radiation damage to their DNA in space. Um, men have been shown to be more prone to some of the physical effects like the swelling of the eyes in space than women. And we don't necessarily know why these are the case, but this has been pretty well documented at this point. Although there are still some biases in these studies because we have so many men that have gone and so few women to have you know statistical analysis to compare these to each other. And, and I want to say that there's there's a difference between a stereotype and an average. Like on average, there is actual data that women do consume fewer things. That's not a stereotype. A stereotype is uh, women are less ambitious, uh, that women are more conflict averse, uh, that we're better cooperators. Those are stereotypes. Right. And while there's a certain amount of truth to the fact that societal pressures push that kind of socialization on women it is not uh it is it is not a a universal truth uh, you meet any fighter pilot uh and and i'm there like in uh, test pilots are just test pilots well and they, anyone they that's just... applying anyone applying to be an astronaut is obviously extremely ambitious because they think it's something they can achieve yeah. so you're already subselecting in the process of finding people that want to be astronauts a whole subset of people that are not average looking at the rest of society. Because most people, if you just walk out on the street, regardless of gender, probably are going to say they either don't want to go to space or they don't think that they're physically or mentally capable of being an astronaut. So it, you've already, you know, you're not looking at the averages here at all. Right, yeah. right. Well, and I think they've made a decided effort. You know, they, I mean, the population of the Earth is closer to 50-50 and that's going to be the the yeah. gender you know, split in the in the astronaut corps. Although in recent years, we've really seen a revolution in the way gender is popularly understood. And, and you know, the movement to recognize trans persons' rights. I mean, it's all, I mean, gender just, it's not a binary thing and the lines are blurred, which I, I rejoice in because it's not really a, I mean, it's just not something that, I don't know, 
we think about when we're when we're up there. And so I really love the fact that these lines are blurred. And I think it'll be actually quite hard to even say what would be the definition of an all-woman crew. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up um, because that was one of the things that I, I wanted to talk about was that we, we do talk about space in terms of binary, again, because of the societal pressures that there's almost certainly been an astronaut who's gone up who's non-binary, but they wouldn't be out about that. Right. And, and part I actually, this is a really interesting question. I was going to say, should it matter? But of course, it might matter if you're looking to see people that are like you going up mm-hmm. into space. For yeah. sure. And I think this is where you can have a more holistic discussion of what the crew, the first crew to Mars should be. You can take away that binary. Maybe the crew just shouldn't be all cis white men or there should be no cis white men on the crew let's take everybody else that has not had a chance to be well represented in space exploration send those people to mars and say we're doing this differently we're doing this better this time we're going to make sure that the humans we send to mars represent everybody so i sort of stepping back a little bit and let me ask you this tanya as our professional martian in the virtual room here um say we do get to the point where the first all-female team going up to speak uh, up to space is announced how do you feel about it um are you excited do you think that this is just a fuss about nothing where does this leave you I, it makes me personally really excited, and I think it will make a lot of other people excited. And actually, we just had an event where this was demonstrated really nicely. So on Monday, the UAE, uh, their first mission to Mars called HOPE, successfully entered Mars orbit. And the government was publicizing that 80% of the science team of that mission are women. And I tweeted about that. And that tweet went crazy. So many people were excited to see that. And, you know, there are some people that reply with either sexist or racist remarks, which tends to happen. But in general, the the response was overwhelmingly positive. And so I think that as much as, as we were saying earlier, like this shouldn't be something that has to be a spectacle. It will be, and it will make a really strong political statement to say, like, we're finally acknowledging that there are things that everybody can do. Like you don't have to be a man to do this. And having, especially if a government does it, I think it would be even stronger. I'm less positive that, you know, a commercial company would do the right things, so to speak. Uh, and they would maybe just go with who has the most money, but one, one can hope. <laughs> uh, when I saw that tweet from Tanya, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I was so excited about that. Uh, I had no idea, and uh, and it's so unusual. You know, in the the U.S., I think it's something like twenty six percent of the the people working at NASA are women. Yeah, at least in the Mars program, like it's twenty six. Yeah, when they they announced their honors uh, recently, um, uh, out of the forty people honored, only two were women. I think, um, you know, the fact that I met Sally Ride, Dr. Sally Ride, first American woman astronaut, uh, and that really, I, I saw someone that really I could could resonate with and just think, well, maybe I could try to do that. That was certainly a help along the way, but there are some roadblocks that I, I think we're learning to be to, to address, and, and some of that is about equipment. Mm-hmm. And Mary Robinette and I have talked to a lot oh, of, yes. about this. <laughs> About, I mean, we need a spacesuit that fits Tanya Harrison. Yeah, I can't apply to be an astronaut because I'm too small. 
the the irony of that so we've already talked about what a boon it is being small but you can't get in yeah Yeah. so I'm going to use a a puppetry example Um, bear with me (laughs) I'm also a professional puppeteer uh, as a side thing we Um, forgot that on the bio uh, it's okay Uh, so so the majority of uh, puppeteers in television are um, white men and and you look at you look at the Muppets and you think, wow, what a diverse cast! You know, there's there's a, a frog and a pig and a bear and whatever Gonzo is. Um, but then you you go below below the frame and it's it's all men. Uh, Miss Piggy was named Woman of the Year. She's performed by a guy. Uh, she was originated by Frank Oz, and the reason is that Jim Henson, when he started out, he's six foot two. Um, and so he built sets that were comfortable for him. And then when people came into audition, the people who did best at the auditions were people who fit into the sets, who could get the puppet up into the frame. And he didn't plan to have this, this heavily dominated male cast, but he did. And then once you've got people trained to do video puppetry, which is this super specific skill set, it's much easier to go back to the same pool than it is to bring somebody new in. And when you do bring somebody new in, they don't look as good as the other people because they haven't had as much experience. So there's this huge cyclic thing that's happening uh, with, I think, one or two exceptions. Every woman who is performing in in video puppetry, anytime there's a a standing set where the puppeteers are actually on their feet, they're wearing clogs that are between two to five inches. Um, actually I know some, I, I've, I know someone who's performed with, with, uh, one foot clogs in order to do this, just to fit into a space that is literally designed for men and no one thinks about it. And that's the same thing that happens. Like why, why Tanya is not able to go up because because it's you know that that size was defined around a different body type. So so to bring this back, um, Katie, you've said a couple of times that it's important to have the the people who are best qualified for the job, irrespective of gender, uh, going up into space. But if the whole system has been built around a certain physiology, uh, like you explained and described with puppetry, maybe, Robinette, um, how do you overcome those inbuilt biases in the system where even if you are technically qualified, you just don't fit the mold? It's a time when we can actually reanalyze the design of everything. And, right. you know, it, un, up until now, everything we've been using in space has been kind of this heritage. Like spacesuits are really old and they haven't tried to it's redesign terrifying. them. Yeah. <laughs> like we use these things to keep people alive in space, and they're like 40 years old. Um, but more. now we have a chance to sit down and design with more people in mind, which also means that those people need to be at the table when the designs are being made in the first place. Because I'm sure that a man who is maybe short for a man, like five six, five seven, still can't relate to what it's like to being barely five feet tall. And, you know, you don't function the same way in the world. You certainly won't function the same way in space or on Mars and thinking about that. And this has actually come up... Um, there's a relatively new group called Sensoria that's been doing all female um, analog astronaut missions. They did, I think, two or three at high seas so far in Hawaii. And one of the things that they brought up was 
we could tell this habitat was not designed with people with smaller frames in mind. And it was just the littlest things like, oh, these cabinets were a little bit too high or the bathroom was definitely not designed for women to use it in mind. And it's something that like just doesn't occur to people that don't think about that or experience that on a daily basis. I mean, I find these ba- these barriers to be fascinating in that if you think about a podium, I mean, podiums are designed for the mm-hmm. average height of guys. They always go up to my nose. <laughs> and it, and actually, even at the inauguration, I don't know if you noticed that, you know, basically somebody went and put a, put a, before Amanda Gorman spoke, they put a little step there. Mm-hmm. I had a little step for operating the robotic arm. I mean, if you never <laughs> see people operating in the realm that you understand or speaking out, then it's hard to see them. And so arriving at this all-woman crew is is a is a process that I think that we are you know, we're coming along and that I think it's easier and easier for leaders to to hear and to realize, especially because you can make the argument that mixed crews uh, do better, actually, than I, I have to say than single sex crews, which I will assume I'm sure the data is small for all women crews, but that uh, crews of men and women actually perform better uh, companies that have those mixes as long as you've created an atmosphere that really welcomes a diverse crew. And I think that that that's the point that we've we've come back to with this this conversation, which I found absolutely fascinating. That more than anything, we need those impetuses to think differently mm-hmm. about what it means to be in space and what to open up space. So we're not constrained by our very implicit biases for how we've designed these habitats and these ideas and these processes in the past. Mary Robinette, Tanya, thank you so much for such an illuminating and fascinating conversation. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having us. It was awesome. So most of us haven't been to space. I I have. Yeah, I know you have, but most of us only experience space through the photos and videos we see. So we're used to seeing what space looks like. Second half. But what does space sound like? On Mission Interplanetary, we can't show you pictures. Podcast, audio format. Instead, you'll hear what space sounds like. In a segment we call Sounds of Space. Okay, Andrew, what do you think that was? Goodness me. Um, so listening to that through headphones, the, the subsonics were amazing. And it took me straight back to those sci-fi movies where you see these mega ships in space with a deep burn on the burners behind. And the, the, 
the sound of that is just reverberating almost at subsonic levels through the ship. So I, that that was my emotional response. I just put myself on one of those kilometers long massive ships with the deep burn going on. I suspect it's not anything quite as far out as that. It was something to make my cat run away. I'm just going to say that. But that makes me wonder whether it's Earthbound. I, to, to me, it definitely felt like you're on some spacefaring ship or something, and there's some, there are some burners going on somewhere. I, that sounds like some sort of um, space engine going. Am I totally out with that? It's a pretty big engine. That was a Mars quake. Wow. That was nothing like I was expecting. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? That's incredible. So it was recorded by a seismometer aboard NASA's InSight lander on Mars. And that was actually the seismic vibrations of Mars, waves from the planet's internal activity. The waves are too low for humans to hear, so the recording is actually sped up to bring it within the range that we can hear. Okay, right. But but there's still a lot of that low-frequency stuff there. I mean, I, that's the sort of sound I could sit here with my headphones on and zone out and listen to it for a long time. <laughs> Isn't that cool, though? I mean, so we sent cool. an instrument to Mars, and... I mean, it's hearing things that even we couldn't hear and then find a way to have it relate to us. Right. But it also shows us that the planet is alive. I Not alive in the real sense, um, but there's movement there. There's activity there. I mean, the more and more we learn, it just seems like such an alive place and looking forward to going. Let's listen to that again. so much for joining us. That was so much fun. And I don't know about you, Andrew, but I am ready to sign up for Mars. Mission Interplanetary is produced by Lance Garavi. Our sound designer and engineer is Steven Christensen. And our music was composed by Mario Iniguez. Remember to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, leave us a review. Please do incredibly important. Recommend us to your friends, your family, your pets, anyone you can grab. And if you've got any questions, just email us at interplanetarypodcast at asu.edu. Mission Interplanetary is a production of Arizona State University's Interplanetary Initiative and Slate. We'll be back next week asking the big questions about space exploration. The future is interplanetary. We'll see you there.